Hey, good morning, friends. Great to be here with you to continue on in worship this morning. I have a question for you that I want to start off with, and it is rhetorical. What is your natural reaction when somebody who doesn't know you tries to tell you what to do? It's rhetorical. How about when somebody else makes a decision on your behalf that affects your life, but they don't consult you first? Chances are good that if you're bothered, maybe even triggered a little bit by either one of those questions, that you're an American. Going back since the late 70s and every year since 1993, Gallup has been surveying Americans about their confidence in our major institutions across our society. There are, I believe, 16 different institutions. And this most recent survey that they did, covering 2021 to 2022, revealed an all-time new low in confidence in America's institutions. These includes everything like government, education, the medical industry, even the church. And as the confidence lowers, you can even look at the statistics and the individual results, and you can notice that there, it looks like, at least, that there's a correlation between the amount of authority that an institution has and the low view that Americans have of that institution. That's part of the reason why Congress is at the, the very bottom. The amount of authority seems to have shifted away. And what is it shifted to? Well, some people have noticed that the shift seems to be away from institutions and instead to individuals. That the authority we used to place in these institutions has now been placed in ourselves. Dr. Alan Noble is an author and a professor, and he has just summed it up this way. Here's what he says. This is the, the spirit of our age. I am my own. I belong to myself. I am my own authority. I can handle my own life. I will decide who I am. I will decide what the purpose of my life is. I don't need an institution or any outside authority telling me how to do that. This actually grieves me. I don't think it's sustainable. And I don't think it's actually what we want. Deep inside, I think our deepest longing is to have an authority to follow, an authority that's good, that's worthy, and that's competent. That's what we truly want. And as we've been in this series out of the book of Luke, we have seen that the life of Jesus, and we are about to see how his death and how his resurrection are above all a claim to authority. That Jesus is making a claim like no other and we've seen as he's come into Jerusalem, coming closer over the weeks, how that conflict of authority between some human beings who have authority and through Jesus is just coming to a head. We've looked at this the past two weeks, but I want to show it again out of Luke chapter 18. There's this moment where Jesus is telling his disciples what's going to happen. He takes the 12. He says to them, we're going to Jerusalem. Everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Then you can read the rest of it. But he knows exactly what's going on. But just because he does, it doesn't mean the people with him do. And on the next slide, you can see that the disciples are not aware of what's happening. They're actually clueless to what's about to unfold. But see my contention this morning is that if we don't understand the authority of Jesus, we won't understand these events, and we won't even understand the gospel. That's why this is so critical to us. John took us through the passage last week when Jesus came into Jerusalem. 
And there was that beautiful scene where the people start to celebrate him using the words of Psalm 118. And it said this, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And Jesus' authority is on display as he enters into the temple, which we haven't talked about. But one of his first things that he does when he comes into the city is to go into the temple and to cleanse it by chasing out everyone who's misusing it. The temple is meant to be a place for God's worship, but instead it's a place of commerce, a place for people to make a profit. And Jesus is purifying it by chasing out the people who are misusing it and abusing it. And as he does that, you can only imagine the embarrassment to the people whose job it was to make sure that the integrity of the worship was high. But Jesus cleanses it. And then at the very end of chapter 19, here's what we read. It says that he's teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men, all of these authorities of the people, were seeking to destroy him. But what's in their way? The people. The people are in the way because they're hanging on his words. It's who we want to be as we open up God's word today. All of this is just setting the stage for where we're at now in chapter 20. So I'd invite you to turn there if you haven't already, but we are in Luke chapter 20 this morning, and we're going to read about how this conflict of authority comes to a head and what significance it has in our own lives. Starting off in verse 1, it says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, and who is it that gave you this authority? These two questions are really just one question in the same. Where'd you get this authority? It's a surprising question if you've been paying attention to what Luke has shown us so far because there shouldn't be any mystery about the authority of Jesus. He's displayed it over and over throughout the weeks that we've looked at this book. Here's just a couple of examples as a refresher in case maybe you weren't even here when we went through these. But back in chapter four, we might look at what Jesus did when he was in a city called Capernaum. Jesus is there and it says that the people were astonished at his teaching for his word, there's that word, possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there's a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice saying, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the demons know who Jesus is. Okay, next slide. It says, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And if we read the next verse, we would read about how the word about what Jesus had done had spread throughout the region. And surely it had made its way into the ears of the leaders in Jerusalem who were confronting Jesus in chapter 20. But if that's not enough, we might look into the next chapter, in chapter 5, another episode that's well known where Jesus is teaching and he's so popular and the place that he's preaching is so crowded that when these men come to bring their paralyzed friend in to see Jesus so, they can, so he can be healed, they can't get in. So they have to dig through the tiles of the roof to lower him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, your, your sins are forgiven. 
And immediately the religious officials in the room say, you don't get to say that. Who do you think you are? And Jesus then says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been on, and went home glorifying God. Okay, back to chapter 20. When they ask this question here, we should keep in mind what we had just read before that in chapter 19. What are they trying to do to him? They're trying to destroy him. Jesus knows that that is their intent, that that is their hope. And so he sees behind the question that they're asking here. It really is not a good question at all. But as we keep going, here's how Jesus responds. Jesus says, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from man? So Jesus ups the ante by asking a question in return. This was a common tactic that rabbis would use with each other. It wasn't just to dodge the question, but it was actually to raise the stakes of the question. So Jesus comes back and he makes this connection with John the Baptist. And he says, if you're going to judge my ministry, if you're going to judge my source of authority, you might as well judge John's as well, because John and I have the same authority. Again, this is not on the screen, but if we turn back in Luke, we would see a passage where this comes just crystal clear. Back in chapter 3 of Luke, we read about where Jesus and John are both at the same place at the same time. And John is asked, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? And John's reply was always to point back to Jesus. Here's what he says. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John always pointed to the superior authority of Jesus. And Jesus, by asking this question back to these leaders, is setting them up for a dilemma. We see that as we keep reading. The dilemma is this. They go off privately to discuss, to deliberate, to calculate their answer. And they say, if we say from heaven, and he's going to say, then why didn't you believe him? Why weren't you baptized like all the other people? But if we say from man, all the people, they're going to stone us to death. They're going to kill us. They'll murder us. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You just see the hypocrisy of these leaders. You see how they have to try to weasel their way into the right kind of answer, but they know that they're caught either way. Because the people were behind John. The people saw that John's ministry was not something that he could just contrive on his own. But that what he was doing was clearly from God. So Jesus connects his ministry to John's so that they might get caught in their own trap that they're, they're trying to set for him. There's no response. There's no reply. And I just wonder, could something like this happen to us? You know, I think as we have conversations with people, we should always give the benefit of the doubt when somebody asks us a question about Jesus, about his authority, about who he is, about what he accomplished, who he claimed to be. We should always 
love those questions and embrace those questions and treat them as though they are valid and genuine. But this text also shows us that there can be a point where people don't want to actually hear the answer. They don't want to listen. In fact, I, I've been in situations with this where uh, in campus ministry, where I've had conversations with students who appeared to be genuine, and we would get into this endless loop of question and response and argument and question and response and argument over and over and over again. And I could just tell after a while, there's no amount of evidence that's actually going to help because they're not willing to entertain any evidence that would contradict the position they already hold. That can happen. Again, we should not just assume that's happening but it can happen. What we see is that there may be a point where the authority of Jesus is just hidden from people because they don't want to see it. But Jesus is going to address their question. He's not going to just leave it here, but he's addressing it through a parable. And we read about that next as we keep going in this passage in Luke 20. Here's what he says. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants. And he went into another country for a long time. When the time came, he sent a servant to his tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third this one, also, they wounded and they cast out. Okay, let's stop there. This was a common scene in Israel's day. Vineyards would have been all over the countryside. It was a common thing then for somebody to purchase a plot of land and then to rent it out to farmers to farm it for them. And then in payment in return, the rent, so to speak, would be some of the fruit of the vineyard. This is a normal setting that would have been immediately familiar to the people. But there's another thing going on here in the parable. Again, a parable is not an actual event that happened, but it's a story that's meant to convey truth. And what Jesus is pointing to with the vineyard is also something that's theological, going back to Isaiah chapter 5. There in Isaiah and in other passages in the Old Testament, Israel is equated with a vineyard. It's a vineyard that's meant to produce great abundant fruit. But oftentimes, it's said that Israel is not producing the kind of fruit it should. So when they hear Jesus telling this story, the parable about the vineyard, they would have immediately connected it to Isaiah 5, knowing that he's talking about them. And let's just look closer at what Jesus says about this. When the time came, we don't know how long this time might have been, because the tenant went away for a long time. So it's like he's, I mean, the landowner. So it's like he's an absentee landowner. They have no idea where he's at or when he might be returning. But if he just planted it, it could be years later when the time came and it finally has fruit. But he says he sends a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit. It's time to pay up. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. What would you do at this point? You're the landowner, you sent somebody to collect the rent, and instead they got beat up and sent back empty-handed. This is where you evict, this is where you sue for damages, this is where you go after them to right the wrong. This landowner is different. What does he do? 
he sends another servant. But this one they also beat and treated him shamefully. So it's even an escalation from what happened before. Because the, they've both been beaten, but this one in some way is treated even more shamefully than the guy before him. And he's also sent away empty-handed. At this point, you call the strong arm and maybe the SWAT team. Okay, you go after them. You get them off of the land. But that's not what the landowner does. Instead, he sends yet a third. And this one also, they, they wounded and they cast out. This word for wounded is the word for trauma that we get trauma from in our own vocabulary. They cause trauma to this guy and they cast him out. Okay, verse 13 says, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Okay, let's, let's help him out. What should he do? Okay, let's recap where we've been. He's 0 for 3 in sending people to collect rent. They've all come back, limping back, empty-handed, covered with shame. Okay, this isn't just like he's, the tenants are writing bad checks, but instead they're actually beating up the people from collections who come knocking on their door. What should he do? Not what I would do. And I'm guessing not what you would do either. Let's look at it. First, keep going. There we go. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, ha, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Every time I read this parable, I can't help but just be confronted by the absurdity of it all. What kind of a landowner would send servant after servant after servant to these people? Isn't this the definition of just stupidity? I mean, would you really say that I'm going to do the same thing over and over and over again and expect a different result? What kind of tenants would be so absurd as to think that they could possibly get away with something like this? How dare they do this to the one whose land they were farming, the one who had given them an opportunity to be fruitful? And if we are catching on to the absurdity on both sides of that, then we're starting to catch the message that Jesus has in this. Again, I've said this is a parable, and with a parable, we have to be careful to not press it too far to try to find a spiritual detail or lesson in every single detail of the parable. But we can't help but just notice the contours of the way God has related to his people across the centuries. We can't help but see God as like the landowner, the one who has sent out his servants to his people time and time and time again. And they have been mistreated. They haven't been listened to. And instead of bearing fruit in their lives, they've been fruitless. We can't help but notice that this is what God has done for his people. They are the tenants in the vineyard. They are the ones who he has given this fantastic opportunity to produce and be fruitful. And yet they've squandered it. And of course, we cannot miss the fact that we have the beloved son. Where else does the beloved son show up in Luke? It shows up back in chapter three. What's back in chapter three? Back in chapter three, 
is Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. Remember those first eight verses we read? Hey, whose authority are you doing this with? And Jesus turns it back on them. What about John? It's like Jesus is pointing back to this moment where John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. If there's ever an endorsement of who Jesus is, of where his authority comes from, it's that moment. If there's ever an endorsement of John's ministry, his baptism, it's that moment where the voice from heaven speaks out. It says, you are my beloved son. Now we should be careful again, since this is a parable and not overread things here. This would suggest that God isn't quite sure what's going to happen. Perhaps they will respect him. That is not true of God. God knows exactly what's going to happen. We read about that at the end of chapter 18, which is the first passage we looked at. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He knows exactly what's going to take place. There's no uncertainty in God's mind of what's taking place. But in this parable, we do see the fact that we have this loving, patient, long-suffering God, that he is the one who calls human caretakers to live fruitful lives. That's what the parable is about. And through that, we see the treatment of the son, that they would throw him out of the vineyard and they would kill him. Jesus continues then with the question of his own. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. This is emphatic. Surely not is the strongest statement you can really make where you say, no way. There's no way that would happen. The reason it's so strong is because it reveals how out of touch they are with the moment they're in. Across the centuries, God and his patience and long suffering had sent people to his tenants and they had mistreated him. And now was the culminating point where the sun was on the scene and it was time now for this action to happen where the blessing that they had enjoyed would now be taken away and given to others. We're about to see that in the coming weeks of this series. They can't understand this moment they are in. And it's a tragic moment that Jesus is going to make even more concrete in just a moment. But he will come and destroy the tenants and he will give it to others. And then Jesus wraps it up, ties the bow on this whole parable by saying this. He looked directly at them and said, notice how Luke is just like slowing us down here by saying, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Scripture is amazing. We had seen at the very start how when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the people declared the words of praise and celebration and worship to Jesus out of Psalm 118. Here, Jesus is quoting 
Psalm 118 back at them by saying, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He knows what's truly in their hearts, and he's quoting the same psalm back at them to reveal it. The builders of any structure would look for that cornerstone to be the most important foundation of a, of a structure. It was the intersection of two different walls. So they would look carefully for a stone that was the right shape, the right dimensions, and had the kind of integrity in it in order to serve the purpose that would hold up the entire structure. The builders then would not just take any old stone. So that's what's in the image here of a stone that the builders rejected. But it's that very stone that's been rejected by them that has been accepted by God. This should cause us to question our own ability to judge the authority of others, to assign authority to other people. Human beings are notoriously bad. Why? Because we look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. We look at things like, are they attractive? Are they charismatic? Do they have the kind of personality that we can all rally around? We look at the outward appearance all too often. And because of that, end up rejecting what we should not reject because God accepts this cornerstone. And whether you fall on the cornerstone or the cornerstone falls on you, it's a tragic result either way. There's an old Jewish proverb that says, if the pot falls on the rock, woe to the pot. If the rock falls on the pot, woe to the pot. Either way, either way, it's a bad deal. And I think it just speaks to the fact that there is an unavoidable confrontation that we all must have with the authority of this cornerstone. What it all boils down to is that the authority of Jesus, it's either the foundation of our faith or it's the obstacle to our faith. The authority of Jesus is, it's either the thing that we build all of our faith and our life around or it actually gets in the way of our faith because we won't accept him for who he is. This is the critical decision that we all face. Whose authority does he have? I don't think we can actually understand who Jesus is if we don't understand his authority. I don't think we can actually understand the gospel and grace unless we understand the authority of Jesus. Tim Keller helps us here. He tells the story of a woman who came to his church and over time became more and more familiar about what it meant to experience God's grace. And he says that she could see immediately that the wonderful beyond belief teaching of salvation by sheer grace had an edge to it. She knew that if she was a sinner saved by grace, she was, if anything, more subject to the sovereign lordship of God. If Jesus had really done all of this for her, she would not be her own. In her own words, she explained it this way. She says, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. 
It'd be like a taxpayer with my rights. Hey, I pay my taxes, so I expect the roads to be a certain condition. I expect the school system to have a certain level of productivity and just good impact on the students. But I'm not like a taxpayer. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But in reality, this is what it's truly like. If I am a sinner saved by sheer grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. My friends, those of us who have embraced the grace of Jesus Christ must also embrace the authority of Jesus Christ over our lives. But if that sounds like a burden, let me just remind you that it's actually the most beautiful, freeing thing we could possibly have. Think again of all of these examples out of Luke. Those places where Jesus' authority is on full display. The places like in Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 5 where the demonic is released of all of the demons that have been oppressing him. Where the paralyzed man had his sins forgiven and where he can now stand and walk. This is what the authority of Jesus does in our lives. This is how the authority of Jesus sets us free and actually gives us true life. That's why I started at at this sermon by saying that I think we actually do all long to come underneath an authority that's good and worthy and competent. The authority of Jesus is what we can embrace as the source of all of our life. So in the end, the motto of our life should not be, I am my own. I belong to myself. But it's, I am Christ. I belong to him. This passage started off with Jesus being asked a question. Whose authority are you doing this with? But really the question comes back to us. What are we doing with Jesus' authority? Is it the foundation of our faith or is it the obstacle? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious reminders to us of who you are, Lord, of what you call us to be, who you have made us to be people living fruitful lives under your authority. Father, I pray for that, for us, that we would be like those tenants who are fruitful, giving back to you, Lord, the things that you deserve because of your goodness, because of your greatness, Lord. God, would you help us to understand more about what it means to live under your authority, Lord, and to find the delight in doing so. I pray, God, that your authority would be our foundation. Lord, we look to you in all things, knowing that you are worthy of all glory and honor, and we joyfully give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.